what I'm about to say. Hey. I thought you were starting. Oh. <laughs> hey, this is Shelby. And this is Courtney. And thanks for joining us today on All Things Macabre. Here on All Things Macabre, we discuss all the things under the topic of odd, weird, true crime, supernatural, and fiction. This podcast contains language and content that is not suitable for all listeners, so listener discretion is advised. If you find a topic we are discussing interesting, we encourage you to do some research on your own. You never know what you may learn. We are just a couple of old friends telling each other stories that we find interesting. And hoping that you'll enjoy and laugh along with us. Through some stories that are weird, true, or fictional that will just make you say, What the fuck? And now, for the fun part. Hey, Macabre Mob, it's Shelby. And Courtney. And I have had a shitty past week. That's an understatement. <laughs> so, let's start with how have you been? Um, I don't know. Good, but stressed, but good stress. Does that make sense? Good stress. No? Sure. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I know what it is, so I... I kind of do understand, but I don't know how to help other people understand that. Good things are coming from the stressful situation. There you go. It's just stressful in the moment because... It's a lot of changes. Yes, a lot. And a lot of loose ends that I have to tie up and big responsibilities. But with it comes some things that I'm going to have to adapt to. But it'll happen. I hope. (laughs) I have to just do a lot of, uh, what's the word? Well, grounding, but also, um, I don't know. Like, just trying to explain to myself that it's an okay situation. You know, that this is happening for a good thing. Does that make sense? I have to continue to tell myself that. You have to continue to tell yourself not to freak out about the change. That's That's what it is. Yes. And so, I don't know what the word was that I was looking for that I have to work on with that. But, yeah. My situation is completely different from your situation. (laughs) Well, luckily, I've just laughed about mine for the past week. But... I don't know how you've laughed at... Well, (laughs) I do consider, like, all the shit that you've went through already. Yeah. That was me with brain surgery. I've just been like, oh, I've had fucking brain surgery. Like, okay. Yeah. Well, you know, my whole year has sent me into that. Yeah. I've had a whole horrible year. So, I'm just going through the fire, you know, whatever. I get up Saturday, I run to Publix with Tina, and we go to get the wallet out of the glove box. And it's not there. Someone broke into my car Friday night, Saturday morning, and stole our wallet. Thanks, asshole. (laughs) Which, yes, you shouldn't leave the wallet in the car, but look, you don't understand everyone's situation all the time. Shit happens, okay? Shit happens. So, they broke into my car, stole the wallet, it's got debit cards in it, credit cards in it, social security cards in it, 
pretty much everything you could imagine. Had your driver's license. And driver's license in it. Mine and hers. So, of course, I just come back home. Make sure we don't have it inside somewhere and forgot to grab it or something. No, it's not there. So I call the cops. And I start looking at the bank statement waiting waiting on the cops to get here. And I have $700 charged to my account. Ooh, Jesus. From some guy whose name is on there. I'm not going to say his name. Yeah. For his protection. But uh, it was not a very common name. So I was like, okay, well, here you go, officer. There's everything that's stolen. Here's something that you might be interested in. Here's the guy's name. So give him the first name. That's all I had. Later on, I do some digging on Facebook. Me and Tina become total web sleuths at this point. That's one does. <laughs> I call him like maybe an hour or two later. He comes back and gets more information because I found the kid's Facebook. He's 22. He lives right here in town. I not only found that, I found out that he has relatives in this neighborhood. I found out everything about this kid. So I gave that name to the officer, the full name. They did some searching into it. He seemed really interested, like, I even found out that he had a record with the police department here. So, once I said that, the cop was like, oh, let me look him up. And he was really interested in that. So, went to the bank, got that handled, got all the cards cut off, you know, got... Luckily, the only charge was, uh, there was one on Tina's credit card. It was a pending dollar, Mm -hmm. but it never went through. She cut the card off in time. Oh, she contacted. Good, good. Uh, we cut all the cards off in time, except for my debit card, which was the $700 charge, a 500 and a 200 So I look through my email, and I have an email from my bank that's got the guy's full name right there showing that he took the money in that cash app. So I hand that over to the <laughs> bank so I can get my stuff straightened out, and like, here you go. And here's the police report, it was stolen, boom, everything's fixed, right? Like, don't worry, you'll get your money here in a couple of days, if that. I was like, cool, cool. So, I feel like there's a butt coming. No. No? No, actually, no. Oh, okay. So, we uh, go on and actually give the email to the police department, the detective that's on the case, and he seems really thrilled about it. Seems like it's going to be a pretty easy case. I mean, well, we found out everything about him. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> we we found out everything about him real easy. Handed it right over to the cops. And now this dumbass kid that decided to break into our car and try to fuck up everything is probably facing a felony because I found out anything over $500 in Alabama mm-hmm. is a felony. So, good luck, kid. Dumbass. But I did check my bank today. I actually have my money back already. Good. So, yeah, there is no but. It's actually all pretty good. It's just a pain in the ass. We had to go get everything over again. Very inconvenient. It took a couple days to get everything straightened out. Uh, Just got our license. That was $32 a piece. And they had to take our picture. Tina was not happy with me. I was gonna say. I told her that <laughs> they wouldn't take a picture. So she did her makeup the day before and the day after, but not the day of, because I convinced her they weren't going to take a picture. Because you're an asshole. <laughs> but she smiled, and it's so pretty anyways. She's so pretty. She doesn't need makeup. <laughs> Judging from that reaction that she just gave you. Oh, you see her. You know she's pretty. She just doesn't have any confidence. She calls you... She. She calls bullshit, but I agree with you. 
So that's about all that's been going on with me, other than trying to get the story researched in the midst of all of the chaos. Which, I got security cameras now, and <laughs> I love them. I can see everything. So, yep. try that again. Apparently you knew that I was here, and I didn't even know that you knew. I see everything. I get an alert every time. I know when a cat walks up now, so now, Cotton Eye Joe's going to have a little trouble, unless he gets in a blind spot, which there are several blind spots, like, around the side of the house. I've got to get a couple more cameras for that. But... Speaking of petty crimes, I've been dying to tell the story of Alvin and Judith Ann Neely. They started doing petty crimes, and then it got much, much worse. So that's who we're talking about today. Sorry, I was going to say something, and then I forgot what I was going to say, and then you continued talking, and then I continued to forget what I was going to (laughs) say. I short-circuited for a minute. (laughs) Well, I expect... This one to be kind of long. Uh, I've got a lot of information on it. It kind of hits a little closer to home for me. So I, I really wanted to spend a little time on this. So this is probably going to turn into a two-parter. I'm excited to hear this. Go ahead and prepare for that. I'm really excited to hear this. Especially because you told me like it's where it's at. Yeah. And that there's chances that I've maybe possibly encountered some of the same stomping grounds, and it's just... Oh, you have encountered some of the same stomping grounds. That's... Definitely. You've been around the area. This is Alvin Howard Neely Jr. He was born July 15th, 1953, and that makes him... A cancer. So tell us a little bit about cancers. So, well... First of all, does that make me the honorary cancer to speak for all the, you know, all my I guess so, because your birthday cancers. is going to... Actually, your birthday is going to pass by the time this is released. It You're will. a cancer. Yeah. Yep. So, people listening to this in the future, or it's the future to us, it'll be the past to them. You know, I'll be yeah. a, a year older to the listeners when this comes out <laughs> than what I currently am right now. Uh, but yeah, anyway... Cancers, we are kind of just known for our intuition. We're known to be creative. We fall under the category of being emotional, but I disagree with that. But <laughs> we're the we're the best sign, you know, because we mm. give the best advice. <laughs> well, lucky for you, I don't give a shit about signs. <laughs> Not for real, though. We we really are known for, like, our intuition and just kind of going off of whatever gut feeling it is that we're having at that moment. Really, though, people do come for us for the best advice. I'm just saying. All right. And then we have Judith Ann Adams Neely, who was born June 7th, 1964. Which makes her a Gemini. And so Geminis are known to be adaptable or outgoing. They're really like the social butterflies. They can also be known to be charming or, what's the word I'm looking for? Able to kind of, well, kind of like charming, you know, like they're able to kind of talk you into doing so, not necessarily manipulative, but able to talk you into doing certain things that they may want you to do because they hack you up about it. Judith was born in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. So I went to college in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. I lived in Murfreesboro, Tennessee for a total of about 10 years of my life. 
You and I have some memories in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. <laughs> Murfreesboro, Tennessee is where I finally hit the age of 21 and I got Courtney to be my DD because she is a little bit younger than me. 10 months. Not not much, but 10 months. So she was my DD and I got so hammered. Oh my God. I got her to get out on the dance floor with me and dance to Cotton Eye Joe. It was amazing. <laughs> no, it was not. <laughs> But she got on the dance floor and did it with me. She was a trooper. I was. I was. I don't remember how to do it, but, you and know. And that's also the night that we learned that I have really good direction because I have no idea how I directed you home. I don't either. But you did. But I did. You did. And then you also told me that there was a cop that was, like, parked behind us in this corner, and I didn't even see them. Because <laughs> I remember walking to the car, and we had just gotten in the car, and you said... Hey, just a heads up, there's a cop, like, right over there. And I said, what? And so I looked, and sure enough, there they were, like, right behind us. What can I say? I, I pay very close attention to my surroundings. You you were shit-faced. <laughs> that was an awful <laughs> night. That was an awful next morning, actually. The night was fun. The next morning was awful. Well, the next morning, I woke up to your cat trying to hide her fucking kittens in the couch. Yeah, I, I had a cat that, it tore a hole in the couch, in the back of the couch, and it would put its kittens in there. So, of course, Courtney's like, oh my god, your cat's putting kittens in the couch. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's normal. It, yeah, you were like, she just does that. And I was just like, like, there's nothing I can do. I've tried and tried and tried. I've blocked it off a million times. It doesn't work. So, <laughs> Murfreesboro used to be, now this was back... Around 2010-ish. Specifically 2011-12, actually. Okay. I was an undergrad during that time. Because I was of age, so it had to be about 2012 when you come up there. Yeah. So, back in this time, I really enjoyed Murfreesboro. Mm-hmm. It was good city life. There was There was crime around there. Of course, there's crime anywhere. But... I didn't feel unsafe in most areas. It wasn't like it is today, because I'm not going to lie. Sorry to anybody listening to this in Murfreesboro, but I can't necessarily say that I feel safe right now going there. I don't... I've driven through Murfreesboro here in the past couple of years, and I don't feel comfortable there anymore. It's just gotten a little too big, a little too messy. Mm-hmm. But back in the 60s, it wasn't quite like that. It wasn't even as built up as it was when we knew it. So, it was a nice town. It was like a center hub almost. But she was actually specifically born in Walter Hill. And it's like right on the outskirts of the city. Okay. Now, Walter Hill is actually where my stepdad was born. Fun fact. Yeah, he was born and raised in Walter Hill. So, I got to ask my mom and him a little bit about it. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't the best area it was definitely very poor okay and that's where she grew up now her mom barbara adams was a housewife and her dad was a construction worker and a carpenter she had an older sister an older brother and two younger brothers they didn't really have much but walter hill was a poor area and they kept a garden to help with food so they always had clothes and food but they were Far away from doing well with money. Obviously, that's that was kind of the whole area. Like you were making it, you were doing all right, but you were making you, it. Yeah, that's, you were making it. You were Ju- surviving. That's really exactly. all it was. You were surviving. Judith said that she didn't really have a bad childhood, and she had never been deprived. Okay. 
Things actually got a little bit better with money when her dad started his own construction company in 1973. Okay. He was making pretty good money, about 250 to 300 a week. Now, I think this is 1973. That is pretty good money then. That's really good money back then. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, honestly, that's about minimum wage now. Yeah. So, yeah. So, it was really good yeah. money back then. During this time, he started to get more distant and he started drinking, but he never really said anything out of line or hit Judith. And then one night in March of 1974, he got on his motorcycle after he'd been drinking and he ended up slamming into the guardrail where he rode it for about 100 feet. Oh. Then he was thrown off into the asphalt. Oh, no. Unfortunately, it really seemed to affect Judith, who had always been really quiet, and at only nine years old, she really just turned to stone at that point. Man. Damn, that's a lot. It wasn't, it is. (laughs) It wasn't just emotional, though. It wrecked their financial situation. Yeah, because he was the sole provider. All he left them was a small social security pension and eight acres of land, which, eight acres of land's pretty good. Yeah. But if that's all you have, you don't want to risk selling it. So for a little while, they leaned on relatives and stuff. But eventually, Barbara got a job at Heatcraft, which was a local factory there. Eventually, she started to move on and started dating around. But due to a car wreck she was involved in, Judith actually found out that her mom had been running around with a teenage boy. Oh, And that was humiliating to her. Whenever she got in that wreck, she was actually charged with contributing to a delinquency of a minor. So, I mean, it was it was out there. It was known. And then she started to spiral down. She quit her job, and she just hung, hung around the double wide and allowed her family to become white trash. And I quote that because that is exactly what Judith said. Damn. Whenever Barbara got bored, I guess, she... Got a CB radio, and then she soon started talking to random guys, and they would start coming over with beer in hand looking for Indian princess. That was the handle she would use on the CB. Sorry. I, I, you know what CB is, right? I, I know. I'm just, yeah, the look on my face. Around, she's a big old flirt. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I know what a CB radio is. <laughs> But I was just looking at that because I was thinking, like, this is the, we're in the 70s, yes. right? Like, 70s version of, um, like, Instant Messenger or some shit. Yeah, kind of, yeah. That's why I was just looking at this because I'm like, these are, you don't know who these people are and they're just popping up and, like, they don't even know her name walking over here asking for Indian princess. <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> You know, I wonder where she got the Indian thing from, though. I was going to ask that. Like, uh, that was going to be my next question. I've seen, I haven't seen pictures of her, but I've seen pictures of Judith, and she's not even really tan. Like, she's white, white. White, white. Did you hear this, Tina? <laughs> white, white. Well, I mean, <laughs> it doesn't look like she has any Native American or anything in her at all. I I just don't know where she got Indian from. White, white. Well, Judith didn't like it at all. Like, she would actually avoid the, like, the guys coming in and stuff by taking long walks in the woods around the trailer, which she enjoyed the peace and quiet anyways. She never wanted to accept the, quote, 
white trash world that her family accepted. At one time, she actually really focused on becoming a nurse, and she was actually a good student that made honor roll and was active in 4-H, FHA, Future Homemakers of America, and even became a cheerleader in 8th grade, which she was very proud of. Now, the crazy thing about this trailer, which, honestly, you and I both living where we have lived know that this isn't really crazy, but the situation makes it crazy. The room, Judith's room, Mm -hmm. was separated from her mom's room by just a sheet hanging. I knew you were going to say that. No, that is common. And that's not just in trailers. That's in houses, too. That's a common thing. Uh, They used to not have doors in the past. Yeah. They would just have doorways. So, that's not disturbing, having a sheet hanging, dividing that. But knowing what Indian Princess is doing? Yes, that's... Oh, God. Yeah. I'm getting, like embarrassment and it's not my i mean look at this time she's only 15 but she still knows what the hell's going on she's continuously that's what i'm saying she's 15 she's seeing a continuous flow of men coming to the trailer for her mom yeah and since it was nothing but a sheet judith got the great displeasure of hearing the drunken sex and of course that would disgust her and sometimes she would even leave the trailer which Sorry, but yeah, I agree. I, I would too. I mean, I don't want to hear anyone. Period. Sorry, I don't. No, I agree. This is a completely off-topic tangent, but <laughs> remember when you and Tina stayed over at my house? Whenever the I think the, it was when the power was out for yeah, like yeah. a week or something, and you guys were sleeping in my living room, and I said I'm gonna go cut my TV on. Let me know if it's too loud. And you said I don't care as long as I don't hear somebody like. Moaning or something, yeah. (laughs) I was like, yeah, as long as it's nothing like that, I don't care. I mean, I'm sorry, I don't want to hear anyone. Like, I'm glad you're having a good time, but I don't want to hear it. Like, I don't want to be a part of that. Sorry. I agree. It's it's a personal thing for me. Like, all of that is a personal thing. Mm -hmm. It don't need an audience. I just can't imagine being her and... At 15. I just... And watching, like, your dad just died... Traumatically. You know, yeah, at, like six years ago. Very traumatically. And all of a sudden now your mom's a whore? Like what? Which I mean, uh, this is going to be devil's advocate, but mom seemed to be grieving, obviously. Yes, and people do grieve in ways such as that. But you don't bring strange guys that you meet over CB radio to your house where you've got your kids. Well, that's where the addiction comes into play. Yeah. Because then all the lines get blurred and then it is what it is. Yeah, that's true. But Judith did say that none of the men that came over actually tried to do anything with her. Well, that so is good that is know. a good thing. She probably could have done whatever she wanted. I mean, her mom's doing whatever she wants. But Judith was actually repulsed by men and guys. Like, just men, boys, guys in general. I would be, too. She had only had two dates ever, and she had never had sex. I mean... I get it. I get it. It, It's one of those situations where it goes one of two ways. You see your parent do this, and you follow in their footsteps, or you see your parent do this and decide, I'm not going to be like that. Unfortunately, she did not stay on that path, I don't think. So... Jumping over to Alvin Howard Neely, 
He was born in Trion or Tryon, I'm not sure, sorry, Georgia. His childhood seemed to be great, really. Just, you know, the small white shingled house with the picket fence around it, you know, older brother and sister that would always play with him in the yard and always seemed to, like, pet him, taking care of him, baby him or whatever. He was a prankster and a jokester from the get-go, and he had blue eyes and a smile that everyone loved to see. So, when I'm thinking this, I'm thinking that typical everybody-loves-this-boy, mm-hmm. you know, heartbreaker dude. Mm-hmm. He was actually in the Boy Scouts, and other than that, I don't really have a lot on him other than he had a typical middle-class-type childhood. I mean, you have a typical childhood, it's not going to be remarkable to talk about. I mean, he had everything he wanted, you know, he was doing better than Judith was, for sure. Obviously. <laughs> yeah. So, Judith and Alvin met for the first time in the early summer of 1979. Alvin had actually been riding around with his friend, Dan Hartley, and Dan was planning to meet up with Indian Princess. Oh, Jesus. So, Alvin rode with him to go meet her. Indian Princess had told Dan that she lived in a trailer on Marlboro Road, and she was the only one around, the only trailer around with a CB antenna, so it would be easy to find. But when they pulled up, Alvin didn't notice the antenna. He noticed Judith standing in front of the car talking to someone else. A neighbor, someone, I don't know, really, but someone else. Later, he found out that this tall, dark-haired beauty that he was so sprung over was Indian Princess's 15-year-old daughter. Did you figure out that he's about 26 by now? I was just about to ask. I was like, how old is he? Yeah. I so, yeah, she's born in 64, and he's born in, six, in 53. Sorry, 53. So that's what, 11 years? And she's only 15 at this time? I mean, once you turn 18, it's like it doesn't matter. Yeah, it, but like, it changes right now, as you get older, like but she's 15. He's about 26. Eh. Uh, yeah. That didn't really seem to matter, though. Dan and Indian Princess talked while Alvin and Judith sat across the kitchen table staring at each other. They were, they were just sitting there, just, you know, googly-eyed or whatever. Judith then suddenly left the room without a word and came back a few minutes later in a different dress with her hair in a different style. Without a word, she and Alvin both walked into the living room to be alone to talk, which they did until 4 a.m. Damn. Yeah, just talk. They did everything together over the next few weeks and talked continuously, telling each other everything about their lives. And, you know, that whole new romance shit. Mm -hmm. He told her about trying to join the Navy and lying about his age and then getting sent to Roanoke for the medical exam. And then he actually got stamped permanently disabled because they found a heart murmur. And that was tragic to him, he says. This is all bullshit, right? No, I think this is actually true. Oh. Oh, I thought you said he had made it up. No, it was what he had told her. I think this is actually true. But he lied about his age. No, he never lied about it. It didn't matter. <laughs> no, I didn't say anything about lying. Oh, I guess I made that up. I guess you did. No, there, there's no lying. Everything's good. Oh, he he lied about his age to get into the Navy. Oh, I got you now. No, he lied about his age to get into the Navy. He was too young. Okay. And then he got sent to Roanoke, and that's where they did the medical exam, and they found the heart murmur, so they stamped him 
permanently disabled. Damn. Okay. Yeah. So I'm, that I'm following that now. killed him. And then he told her that he was actually already married to Joanne, but she wasn't much to look at. She was a liar and a cheat, and she'd actually still been married to another dude when she married him, but that marriage would soon be over. I'm sensing some red flags, but okay. I mean, I'm sensing a lot of red flags. Everything says fucking run. But when you're 15, and he's the older boy, and he's interested in you, and you're infatuated with him, and... And he's gotta be this great guy. Ugh. So, by the end of the summer, this continued on. They had kept going on long rides for hours in the car, just talking, and she just enjoyed getting away from the trailer. Hell, Dan never even went home after that first night. Him and Indian Princess shacked up. So Judith had a lot of fun with Alvin. They always kept each other laughing. Then she finally told him that she was a virgin and she was saving herself for the right man. And he was the right man. Mm. He was funny and generous, but he had a daring criminal edge. Mm. So after the first time, they couldn't get enough. Then they decided in the fall to plan to elope. So, a few weeks after she started her sophomore year at Oakland High School... I was about to say, isn't she still like 16, 15, 16? Yes. So, a few weeks after she started her sophomore year at Oakland High School, Judith wrote her mom a harsh letter and eloped with Alvin. Oh my god. And they went and lived with his family for a little time. And then they moved to Rome, Georgia. And then to Kennesaw, Georgia, where they lived at Smith's Motel and he worked at Magic Market across the street... Until one night when a group of deposits just happened to go missing. And then Judith and Alvin skipped town and headed towards Alabama and then Albany, Georgia. They they really had a thing for just, you know, going around. Nice. So, fun fact, Oakland High School. I actually used to go to that school every morning whenever I rode the bus in middle school to drop off the high schoolers before I went to school. Really? Yeah. So, I could actually take you there sometime. I don't know if I want to go. But. No, probably not. <laughs> so they both got a job at Zippy Market in Dawson where, go figure, the same thing happened. Mm. Judith got robbed and they were on the move again. So they lived out of their car. They ate bread and peanut butter that they kept in the glove box Damn. as they continued robbing for weeks. July 14th, 1980, they stopped in Ringgold, Georgia to get married. Then they headed to Columbus, where they had their honeymoon at the Econo Lodge in nearby Phoenix City, Alabama. How romantic. Now, another close to home. My dad's family is from Columbus. I don't know if you remember that or not. I don't really talk about them much. Mm -mm. Yeah, I've got family from Columbus. And actually, my Nana broke her hip, I'd say now probably about a year or two ago. And she actually stayed in Phoenix City while she was in rehab. Well, damn. Yeah. So, again. <laughs> okay. It, all these things just, I, I had to tell this story. So. you're It's crazy how connected you are to it. It, it is. It's, it's weird. And, well, kind and of he, like, he actually keeps going. This is your Bondurant twins. Because mine. Yeah. I was connected at, I in weird ways to it. And you're, yeah. Holy shit. Yeah, it's crazy. Full circle. (laughs) In an odd, weird way, but yeah. So, during all this honeymoon at the Econo Lodge, 
Mm-hmm. Alvin decided that they were, he was feeling kind of cramped and wanted to travel to Texas. And Judith was like, bet, I'm down for anything, you know, whatever. As long as it's not a convenience store or cheap motel, let's go. And I have to keep reminding myself, she is a teenager. She's young. She's very young. And, I, yeah, I would, I, I don't have, yeah. <laughs> I can't wrap my head around the fact that she's a teenager and she's, you know, doing all these scams and... You know, manipulating the robberies. I didn't see it coming. Yeah. Yeah. So, they, you know, went around traveling and all that. And they got to a small town between Marshall and Dallas, Texas. I know nothing about Texas, so I don't know anything about I don't know either. After getting there, they headed back to Panama City, Florida. And through all of this, Judith loved seeing the new sights and experiences. Like, water slides in the ocean. But Alvin really enjoyed the air conditioning and sitting and eating obsessively. <laughs> he gained nearly 200 pounds. They've only been together like a year. Like, look, I gained weight whenever I got with Tina because I'm happy. But I didn't gain 200 pounds in a year, especially. That's concerning, but I mean, yeah. But yeah, he'd rather lay on the bed or sit in a chair reading the Bible. Or a detective magazine. And that's not me just saying shit. That's that's what was said. So this dude was either reading about crime or the Bible. Okay. Now the important part about her being so adventurous is... She went down a water slide several times on the way to Texas. And at that time, she was actually six months pregnant. Oh my god. She ended up having a miscarriage. I couldn't pinpoint when exactly... But she ended up having a miscarriage, and it said it's due to the going down the water yeah, slide. damn. So, of course, they're going through all this, having a great time. They're blowing all this money that they robbed. And now they're like, all right, well, we're kind of getting low on money. So, let's head back to Rome, Georgia. And sometimes they'd go out to Chattanooga to watch wrestling matches. I'm not a big fan of wrestling. They both loved wrestling. Not a fan. I'm not a fan either, so <laughs> I I don't really get I don't get it for you, but I'm glad you went you all the way to Chattanooga to <laughs> see some wrestling matches while living in motels. <laughs> well, I guess reality hit them and they knew they needed to get money. So Judith robbed a woman at gunpoint in a parking lot of the Riverbend Mall. Oh shit. That escalated real quick. It did. Soon, they were caught trying to pass off the stolen checks, and both Judith and Alvin got charged. Alvin was sentenced to five years and ultimately sent to Walker Correctional Institute in Lafayette. But Judith, since she was still under 18, she was turned over to the Rome Youth Development Center and served the bulk of her sentence later in the Youth Development Center in Macon. So, November 12th, 1980... Only two days after Judith got to the Rome YDC, the Youth Development Center, she gave birth to April Neely and her twin brother, which I cannot find his name. Wait, she was pregnant? Not only was she pregnant, she gave birth two days after she got to the detention center. She was very pregnant. Oh my god. As soon as she gave birth... Obviously, the kids were taken, and custody was given to Alvin's mother. 
while she and Alvin were both locked up, they would write each other, keeping the romance alive, but also showing a lot of jealousy between both of them. Okay, hold up. Side note. Tina just pointed something out, and we talked about it, the three of us, and we actually kind of figured something out. So she gave birth two days after getting into custody. That is a fact. That's down on paper. Mm-hmm. The miscarriage is not on paper. It was two separate pregnancies. However, after looking at the timeline, the summer of 80 losing the baby with the miscarriage, mm-hmm. and then having the twins in November, that doesn't add up to me. There's not enough time. No, because it's only, well, you know, four or five months, depending on whenever you... There's not enough time. You no, know, there's not enough time, so... So... Now we are unsure about the miscarriage, but know that it was said. I I don't know. I'm not going to talk to the bitch myself. So even if I did, she'd probably lie. So I just wanted to throw that in there real quick so you guys know. I mean, hell, we learn constantly along with you guys. So back to it. So while Alvin and Judith were both locked up, they would write each other keeping the romance alive, but they would show a lot of jealousy between the both of them. At times, he wrote her, I have enough on you to put you in prison for a long time, and you can't have me and play around too, because he would actually accuse her of sleeping with the guards at the YDC in Rome. Why is he accusing her of this? I mean, it's kind of like a tit-for-tat thing. Or, you know, like him threatening, but what provoked that, do you know? Well, one thing, just just knowing this part, I can see it two ways. Either A, he's just extremely insecure, which he seems to be. That's where I'm going, yeah. Or B, he's doing it. Yes. But because usually cheaters accuse before they get caught. Is he not is I thought he was in jail. He is. They both are. Oh, never well, yeah, never mind. Anyway. Yeah. But that that was my other thought too, but I'm I mean it could be both. Could be. And the thing is, she was the same way. She was convinced that he was cheating on her and would write him back, I'll take care of her when I get out. Oh my god. And well, I noticed that you seem to admire this Janie saying that she is a beautiful 16-year-old and that she has more smarts than most 30-year-old women. Well, let me tell you something. She might be trying to get you by whatever means she can, but she will damn well have to kill me to do it. And I will sure as hell not give this little bitch the upper hand. I'll kill her before she ever gets you from me. Damn it, I love you, and I will prove it to you. Just wait. Okay. That's a quote. That That's what she wrote in a letter to him. Okay. I mean, it's just childish shit. That's why I was like, it was tit for tat. But, yeah. But, I mean, yeah. I guess regardless, now I, now I understand why he's saying what he's saying, because it's just pettiness, you know, of... It's just the insecurity between them. Who's trying to point a finger and try to piss off the other one, yeah. It, it wasn't always about their romance or jealousy in the letters, though. Judith did claim that the staff at the YDC was interrupting their letters to each other, not allowing her to call him on their anniversary, and even saying that they are raping the girls that are incarcerated in there, the guards and stuff are. 
So they, they talked about a little more than just them. Is that proof of fact, though? Or is it speculation on her account? Like the, it's the it's right speculation part. on her account, to my knowledge. Okay, that's what I thought. So, Judith was released in November of 1981. She actually went to live with Alvin's parents, and he was released, early release, at the end of April of 1982. And that's where Judith decided to go meet him at a bus station, and they went to a movie and had a great time, just like whenever they first met. But after a few weeks, the talking kind of died down. Alvin wasn't interested in her anymore. The honeymoon phase died down real quick. <laughs> he didn't even want her. He didn't even want to have sex with her. Like, yeah, yeah. And they had no money, and we all know that is always a big problem in a relationship. That it is. So, what do you think they did? Fought. Well, yeah. <laughs> what do you think they did about the money? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> They probably wouldn't rob more places or stores or whatever they could to get their money. They actually broke into some P.O. boxes. They learned how to do that. Oh, shit. They stole some checks. They got some money orders with them. And then after a few, they signed off on them, you know, whatever. They actually took off and went to her mom's in Tennessee. They got a van. They went down to Panama for a bit before the crime in Georgia started again. <laughs> we gotta take a quick vacation. Yeah, quick. like they just... <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> and obviously, they learned a little extra shit in jail. Obviously. Because they upgraded a little bit from just taking a deposit and running. I never would have thought of P.O. boxes. No. No, I wouldn't either. Damn. Now I don't trust anything. Well, I mean, I didn't trust shit to begin with, but still, like... Damn. Yeah. <laughs> so, they were planning on going back to Georgia, even with this little mini vacation thing they had. Mm -hmm. Because, well, they had a score to settle with the staff of YDC. Supposedly raping them and stuff. I see where this is going. Yeah. As someone, with all their crimes and stuff, their slew of robberies and stuff, someone had actually called them Bonnie and Clyde. Mm -hmm. They agreed that they were not really like Bonnie and Clyde, but they were more comical. They were more like Boney and Claude. What? Yeah. So, Boney and Claude, that's what got me interested in the story originally before I found out all the other tidbits in there. That is... Oh, Boney and Claude. Now, I've like seen it. great value. The, great, the Wish version. I have seen it spelled, like, C-L-A-U-D, but as I'm sitting here thinking about it, and I've thought about it, trying to figure out how in the hell they came up with that name, mm -hmm. I, I kind of wonder if Boney, because she was so skinny, uh -huh. and Claude, because maybe she clawed him up, you, you get what I'm saying uh, there, yeah. Yes. So that's the only way I could come up with it, like... I, I could see them going comical with that, damn. That is so stupid. So stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. So, anyways, even Boney and Claude, with their arguments going on and stuff, they they ended up getting two separate cars. There was a, a red Ford Granada that he would drive, and then she would drive a brown Dodge Demon. One of the reasons that he claimed he didn't want to ride in the car with her anymore 
was because she was actually really messy. She kept the car messy. Okay. Another reason is because sometimes she'd be nice, and then at times she'd just be straight up a bitch. Like, for no reason. She would try to say things just to piss him off. Just poking the bear. So, it shows more separation there. But they were still together. They were driving right there together. Down the same road. And they they ended up getting Cobra CB radios installed in both the cars so they could communicate with each other. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, they were right there together doing the same thing, but they weren't sitting side by side. Alright, cool. So apparently, a demon is a Dodge Challenger version, or like a, it's like a Dodge Challenger special, like, version Mm -hmm. of that. I didn't know that. Interesting. Both of them seem to be, like, nice cars. I'm not gonna lie. Really nice cars. Okay. So yeah, of course you you buy the really nice cars out of other people's money. (laughs) Oh yeah, of course. You ain't gonna spend your own money on it. (laughs) Yeah, because they couldn't afford it. No, they can't even get a job and keep it without robbing them. So they first stayed in Macon in a crappy motel. And in the first few days, they came up with a lot of ideas. But they decided to start with Mrs. Allen. Alvin got Judith to call Mrs. Allen from the hotel and told her that her husband was beating her and she needed help. Asking Mrs. Allen if she would meet her at the motel, which she said she would stop by the next day around 5.30. So, Alvin got Judith to call this lady and be like, Oh, my husband's beating me. I need some help. Please come meet me at the motel and help me. Mm -hmm. And this (laughs) nice lady said, Okay, I'll come over there around 5.30 tomorrow. And as they were waiting for that time the next day, they were driving around looking for John Brownlee's house. He was one of the security guards from the Macon YDC. Okay. So they planned to do something to him after Mrs. Allen, who was also with the YDC. I, yeah, I yeah. assumed that, yeah. So around five that afternoon, someone from the YDC called saying that Mrs. Allen had gone out of town and wouldn't be able to make it. Judith and Alvin figured she had lied And they decided to go out to the YDC office, and they saw her car. So they decided to go after Brown Lee and drove around until they found his house. Now, something I didn't put in here, but I remember reading, is they were appalled that she lied to them. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That blew my mind. Like, how... How can you be mad at a liar whenever you're trying to fucking kill her or something? That's what I was about to say, pot, meat, kettle. Like, I mean, let's be... (laughs) Are you trying to do worse? What? Right. Like, I guess she finally decided it was sketchy, thankfully, and it was all good. She trusted her good. Yeah. So they they drove around looking for Brownlee's house for a while, and then they found it. So whenever they found it, they decided to go back to the motel and call him. What is it with this whole, I find you, I'm going to go back to the motel and call you and then try to set up some type of scheme but then again i also have to think well we're still in the 80s and there's no cell phones yeah, so yeah no cell phones and if you can get someone to come to you it's probably easier to get away with that is true especially back in the 80s while judith was at the ydc she knew that john brownlee john had a thing for her and she called him up being flirty and said that she wanted to meet him And then she reminded him that one time he told her that if she were ever in town, he wanted to see her. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not helping the guard situation there. 
knowing that it was like that. But that doesn't mean that they were raping people. I was going to say, he may have meant it in a harmless way. Thing is, John actually told her that he couldn't meet up with her because he got married a few months ago. I mean, I don't feel that John necessarily meant it in a malicious way to begin with, but I may be wrong. I respect him for saying, hey, I still can't meet up because... Yeah, I got married, sorry. Yeah. So after they hung up, Alvin and Judith planned to drop Judith off at John's house so she could sneak in the window, let Alvin into the house, and then they were going to wait for John to get home so they could knock him out, wait for him to come back too, and then rape his wife in front of him. What? He wanted to get back, Alvin wanted to get back at all the men at the YDC that did bad things to Judith Ann. That probably never happened, but... Yeah, probably not. But now he was going to rape and kill all of their wives for it. Oh my god. That was their master plan. They soon ended up going to Rome, where you remember Judith spent most of her time at the YDC. Mm -hmm. They kind of gave up on making because shit kept falling through. Like every time they would set up a plan, something would fall through. So they were like, well, fuck, just, <laughs> we'll just go to Macon and try it there. So in early September, Ken Dooley got a call from a female asking if it was Ken Dooley's house, which, of course, he said it was. The female said her name was Susan, said she was a friend of Sherry's, which was his wife, and said that she was a friend from when she lived in Kentucky and she would be passing through Rome and wanted to stop by and see her. She then asked for directions to his house, and he gave her precise directions. And I quote, Once you get to Rome, get on Maple Street, and come to Lindell, to the Dather Park Diner, and take a right. After you take a right, we're the third brick house on the left. There'll be a red Volkswagen in the driveway, and a green and white Buick too. The woman on the phone told him to tell Sherry that she'll see her when she gets to Rome, and Ken said okay, hung up, and finished eating his dinner. Now, you do not know who this person is, and this is kind of how times have changed. Yeah. You do not know who this person is, and you just gave them precise directions, including the vehicles that would be in the driveway. Looking at it in this day and age... There's no There's way, no way I'd give that information out. I would have to really know you. Mm-hmm. And I had to confirm with my wife that you really did yes. have a friend from back in yes. Kentucky. That was, I'm not going to just be like, oh, yeah, come on. I've never heard about you, but come on. Yeah. No, no. No. I agree. So when Sherry got home, Ken told her about the call, and she told him that it was strange because she didn't have a friend from Kentucky I named Susan. <sighs> Yeah. So on September 10th, 1982, Sherry met Ken at the door that night when he got home and told him that he had a call, he'd missed a call, but didn't know who it was. It was just a girl that wanted to know if he was home. The phone rang again. Sherry answered, telling Ken it was for him. It was that girl again. When Ken answered, there was silence. He was like, you know, hello, hello. Then a male voice said, You've screwed the last girl you're going to screw, and you're going to pay. So Ken obviously was like, Who the hell is this? But the guy hung up. So just a short time later, he was getting ready for bed, and four loud pops hit the house, and Sherry started screaming that someone was shooting into the house. 
He ran to the far end of the house and glanced around outside trying to find any kind of movements. I mean, just seeing anything go on, a corner of his eye or whatever. And then he saw taillights of a speeding car a ways down the road. He's like, man, I could go after him, but uh, there's really nothing else I can do. Yeah. So he went on back in and he called the cops. He went to work the next morning at the Rome YDC and he told his supervisor about what happened. The supervisor listened. I mean, he was concerned, but he asked him to keep everything quiet because it may scare other people. Clearly, this this is a mistake. I don't agree with it. So the supervisor told him not to told tell him people. not to. Yeah. yeah. Now I I agree with that because I mean I agree with you, not the supervisor. You should be able to tell other people so they can be ready, so they know to be on their toes. But the supervisor was like, you know, just kind of keep this hush-hush because I don't want you... I don't want everyone freaking out. September 11th, 1982, the next day, Linda Adair returned home with her husband after shopping and dinner. She was the assistant director of the YDC. So the phone rang, and she asked her husband to get it, so he did, because she really just didn't want to get up. But he was like, hey, it's for you. So when she answered, there was a silence. So she hung the phone back up and asked him who it was. He said he didn't know, just a young girl who asked if Linda was home. About 11.30 that night, the phone rang again. And as she started towards the phone, she heard something beating at her back door. She was kind of in shock and terrified of everything going on at the moment. I mean... I would be. I would be, too, because your phone's going off and somebody's... The the beating at the door, that's what would get me. Yeah. Whenever she finally picked up the phone, there was a lady screaming on it saying, Linda, what's happening? Somebody just threw a bomb at your house. Well, hell, that just increased her anxiety a million times more. The lady on the phone was actually her neighbor, Susan. And the young guy beating on her back door was just a young man trying to warn her about what was going on. Like, hey, there's a fire. So she yelled at Gary, her husband, to get out of the house with her, and they rushed out into the yard. When the police got there, Susan, the neighbor, told them that she heard her dog snarling, and she looked out her window, and she saw a car rush to back out of Linda's driveway, and then someone hurled the bomb at her house from the car. Damn. The young guy that was beating on the door, mm-hmm. he had just dropped off his date that night right there in that neighborhood. Wow. Yeah, he had actually seen the bomb explode just as an early 70s Dodge Demon sped by leaving the area with a woman behind the wheel and a man in the passenger seat. So there's at least some kind of clue. The officers processed the crime scene there and they actually found a new grape soda bottle, gasoline, And the remnants of, like, a cheap bathroom cloth Mm -hmm. of some kind. And it was a few feet from the carport. But it also landed a few feet away from Gary Adair's car. So it was a few feet from the carport. A few feet from the car. It was the perfect place to not blow anything up. Just have a fucking fire and boop, fizzles out. So the dumbasses can't even throw a fucking Molotov cocktail, right? (laughs) Thankfully... Thankfully, but, like, come on. Oh, how you're just like, boop. <laughs> <laughs> the, boop, there's the fire with the sound. <laughs> uh, so, they failed there, thankfully. <laughs> they tried. <laughs> but as Linda was answering the questions for the police, the phone rang. And she went and answered it. 
It was a female voice asking for Linda. And then she said that she was calling about the shooting at Ken Dooley's house last night. And Linda, Linda interrupted, what shooting? What are you talking about? But the voice just kept on like she didn't even say anything. The attempted firebombing at your house tonight, and you both will die before the night's over. What the fuck? Linda demanded the caller identify herself, obviously, but there was no answer. So Linda ran back out to the police and told them about the call. The cops told her they wanted her to listen to something. It was actually a call to the police station they had recorded saying that the shooting and the firebombing were for the sex abuse that she went through at the YDC. But when the operator asked who was calling, she hung up. Linda told him that it sounded like the woman that called her. They're progressively starting to get worse. And as you say progressively, I'm looking at it as kind of like, it's escalating very quickly. And it's taking some very dangerous turns. And it's... I mean, I still will just rule it on childish behaviors or, you know. Or yeah, just being immature. And, but the fact that the immaturity is leading to people being hurt, and I'm assuming somebody is going to die, or we wouldn't be sitting here talking about this today. Oh, yeah. but <laughs> It definitely gets worse. Unfortunately, I think I'm going to cut it today because it's been in triple digits all day. We yeah. have to record with the air conditioner off. And you guys don't know this, but you, you're you about to. It's so damn hot. Like, first of all, I got high blood pressure. <laughs> I just found out I have high cholesterol. I'm getting old. It's hot. So I just went and threw up. It's so hot. So we're going to cut this today. And she's a trooper. She went, She got sick and then came back. She was like, all right, you ready to go? And I'm like, yeah, let's hey, go. I got to finish it for you guys. <laughs> I, I get excited to tell you the story. And this is a really good stopping point. Because from here... It just gets worse. <laughs> You're kind of leaving us on a little bit of a cliffhanger, though. It is a little bit of a cliffhanger. But unfortunately, if I kept going, it would just continue. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, on that note, I'm going to get out of here so I can cut the air back on. <laughs> Sorry that we're being a little um, selfish today. But we can't have Shelby getting sick again. No, and I'm sorry if this story has seemed a little... Uh, discombobulated yeah the heat's kind of done something to us today it's yeah yeah it's uh we've been under a heat advisory for a couple days yeah i've said that i feel like i'm malfunctioning today so um i get the vibe that it's not our normal self so i apologize but maybe next time hopefully next time when we come back we'll be back to our normal macabre flow yeah yeah but the information is still good in this story so keep it in mind and be ready for part two. All right. See you part two. Bye, guys. See ya. All research is done by Shelby Hudgens, Courtney Pilant, and Tina Collins. A special thanks to Tina Collins for managing us. And we are a lot to manage. All social media is linked in the description below. Be sure to follow us. And don't forget to leave a rating on wherever you get your podcasts. If you have an interesting topic that you'd like to hear on our podcast, please email it to allthingsmacabre.pod at gmail.com. That's M-A-C-A-B-R-E. Did this episode make you say, What the fuck?